Welcome to Trying Times, short, immersive stories to raise class consciousness. Episodes written, produced, and narrated by me, Abera Amadi. About a week from the day of the strategy meeting, Chooks is in his car driving back to his home after yet another stressful day at the office. With the election about three weeks away, he has slowly de-escalated his staff's efforts. As for the grim deed itself, Chooks has spent the past week planning, hoping to implicate as little people as possible. If it got out that he was plotting to assassinate his political opponent, he would be hanged the next day by his constituency. He's decided to be incredibly discreet that only he can do the task. To find out when and where would be the best moment to carry out his assassination, he had his secretary find out when Kingsley would be at his next few openly public events. After analyzing Kingsley's next public appearances and the different scenarios that would ensue, he felt the best chance would be at an upcoming soccer match that would be hosted within the district of Mbise. This soccer match is very popular and held annually in an old soccer stadium where a local team inside this district plays another from a neighboring district for a trophy. The whole soccer match is a fundraiser where half goes to the district of Mbise and the other to the neighboring district towards materials for public schools. The initiative was started by Chooks in his first term, which is why it upsets him that it must happen here, though he feels he has no other choice. A few things do, however, work out in Chooks' favor. Since it's in a stadium that he's familiar with, he knows the ins and outs of everywhere. He also knows there is no special seating for any public official, so Kingsley will be in the thick of a loud and rowdy crowd, a perfect place to give Chooks enough time to assassinate him undetected and escape before the crowd notices. Even though this has been Chooks' event, the Akeji controversy has limited Chooks' public appearances, so if he doesn't appear, it wouldn't be surprising. Upon his arrival, Chooks plans to be completely covered and unrecognizable, dressed with a large trench coat, black gloves, a bowler hat, and black sunglasses. He will use his 9mm pistol, a weapon he kept safely in the drawer next to his bed for protection against an attacker in his home, to murder his political opponent. He plans to enter the stadium in the middle of the match, locate Kingsley, make his way to him amongst the bustling crowd, and once a goal is made or a penalty kick is shot, at the height of the crowd's excitement, launch a bullet from mid-range into his head. While the crowd would be in disarray, he would make for the nearest exit, leaving the stadium, disposing of the gun, and dealing with the fallout. Despite how deliberately planned all of this seems, Chooks is horrified. He's been angry before, he's been desperate before, but never in his entire life had he consciously thought of committing physical harm to anyone. What if someone recognizes him and he's arrested? What if he shoots and misses Kingsley entirely? What if he can't even bring himself to pull the trigger? So much can go wrong and so little can go right. The chances of this assassination succeeding is extremely low. Despite all odds going against him, some part of him is crazy enough to still try. While he's mortified for wanting this, in his mind, Chooks honestly believes this is his last chance to turn around a dire situation. He doesn't care which direction destiny swings for him as long as he's doing something to satisfy himself. To win a battle, no one thinks he can win. 
The stakes for him are too high to have regrets. And as a result, he's resolved to being strong no matter the price, as he believes there is none too high for him to pay to save his daughter. To slaughter a man that could likely bring about great change and inspiration to a great amount of people does not excite Chooks. But to have a health care plan that can allow him to keep his daughter alive even for a bit longer is too important. He has no choice but to be strong for her. As the car arrives home, the chauffeur notifies Chooks. Thank you, my friend. Exiting his vehicle, Chooks thanks his chauffeur and tells him he will not be needing his services tomorrow. His driver is a good man with two sons and a wife who will not have him be involved in this messy endeavor. He's decided to drive himself. As he enters the house, he looks at the clock near the front door. The time is 11.30 p.m. Chooks sees the living room light on, approaches the room, and finds his wife laying down and reading a book. Welcome home, and I'm just finishing my rereading of Othello by the great William Shakespeare. We have some great Nigerian writers like Chinua Achebe and Wole Suinka, but Shakespeare is a world-class genius. I mean, he was so creative. Here we have a black general of the Venice armies, one of the most respected and beloved black men in all of Europe, and he throws it all away because of jealousy, committing murder because of his innate flaws and insecurities. It's disgusting how... Honey... I would love to hear the rest of it, but I'm very tired. Tell me more later, okay? Okay, I'll join you upstairs once I finish. Chooks heads towards the staircase and begins to climb. His feet immediately start to feel heavy as thoughts of tomorrow flood into his mind. Very vividly, he replays scenarios over and over in his head, mentally preparing for any outcome he might encounter. He arrives at the top of the stairs and makes his way towards the bedroom. Once inside, he opens his closet door, turns the light on, and stares at the ominous outfit he's selected for tomorrow, with the trench coat and others compiled together. He then makes it over to his bedside, still in his very nice black suit, opens the top drawer next to him. Inside, among many other miscellaneous objects, lies a black box with a lock. Pulling a key from his pocket, he enters the key into the hole and unlocks the box. As the top lid is slid up, Chooks becomes frozen as he gazes upon the inside of this box. A rush of confusion and anxiety consumes him. Where is it? The 9mm pistol that Chooks had seen inside this box only a few days ago was now gone. Without thinking, he rapidly starts checking the other drawers. When he doesn't find it there, he checks under the bed. When he doesn't find it there, he scourges his closet. This cannot be happening. This cannot be happening. The gun was the centerpiece of the whole operation. No gun, no assassination. Chooks thought he had prepared well up until that point and couldn't for the life of him figure out how he misplaced it. He had been so careful. After a few minutes of his loud, frantic search of his own bedroom, he begins pacing around in small circles recalculating the scenarios for tomorrow, thinking of how to quickly obtain a new gun with little discretion. He paces and thinks and paces and thinks and paces and thinks and paces and... What happened here? Chooks looks towards his surprised wife and instead of offering comfort or any sort of affection, immediately confronts her. Honey, what did you do with the gun? 
His wife, finally realizing what is going on, begins to question him. What were you going to do with the gun? My loving wife, I do not want to implicate you. Just tell me where it is, and I swear as the man you know and love, I will fix everything. Firstly, I am your wife. I am always implicated in everything you do. And secondly, I have seen how this election has deteriorated your mental health. You have become more and more desperate with each passing day. Maybe it's just not worth all this trouble. We are still very smart and fortunate people. Please, let's figure out how to continue treatment on our daughter through other means. I took that gun away because I was scared you were going to devolve into someone who would hurt yourself or someone else. Now I walk into an out-of-order bedroom and see you want to do exactly that? You are a politician. You are not above bad fortune. If you are the man I know and love, you would never physically hurt anyone. Honey, I'm not suicidal. In fact, it's the opposite. I'm so full of life. I want to protect what we have at any cost. Remember what I said before. We must be strong. This is how we do it. I'm the last one who wants to do it this way. But I must, because our daughter deserves it. No, I will not have you use our daughter as your excuse to commit this atrocious sin. Say you want to stay in power. Say it's for your ego, but don't you ever try using our precious, innocent daughter as an end to these despicable means. I won't have it. At this point, Chooks was not looking to reason anymore. He had been building the confidence to carry out this assassination, and it was finally to happen tomorrow. He was not going to let all his preparation be for nothing. His temper was quickly, quickly running thin. And he wasn't going to let even his wife get in the way. I don't have time for this. Where's the gun? I will not contribute to another man's murder. The gun! You would never hurt anyone. Forget about the gun. I will not ask again. Where did you put the gun? I won't have you fall like this. This isn't you. Adana! Adana! You are not well. This election will not save our daughter. So much anger had built up through this interaction with his wife, Chooks erupted and had done something that he had never done before. He striked his wife across her cheek. She stumbled down to the ground and couldn't believe her eyes. Her beloved husband had slapped her across the face. The same husband that swore to protect and love her for eternity. Anyone in this situation would become emotional. Being hit by someone you love sends mixed emotions. Someone you really like has done something you really do not like. That confusion usually brings about distress and even more problems. But not Chooks' wife. In this situation, the moment Chooks had striked her, she was in a state of confusion for only a second until realizing what must happen next. If you are so weak that you are now capable of striking me, I now know you are not the man I married. All right then, have it your way. Chooks was still furious and in this moment couldn't care less about anything but the centerpiece of his assassination. His wife could only be disgusted with the man towering over her while she laid on the floor of their bedroom. She took in a deep breath and exhaled. She stood up, dusted herself off, and walked out of the bedroom while Chooks waited there patiently. A few minutes later, she returned to the room with the 9mm, threw it on the bed, and walked away. Chooks wrapped his finger around the weapon, feeling a rush of both dread and excitement. Never before has he done something like this in his life. His wife 
had possibly just walked out on his life. The family he was trying so hard to preserve seemed to be crumbling before his own eyes. But he wasn't thinking of any of that. He had a big day tomorrow. On the day of the assassination, Chooks could not sleep. He went to bed alone that night and was kept up by adrenaline. Scenarios plagued his dreams, imagining a million different ways the day could go. By the time it was around six in the morning, Chooks shot out from bed and prepared for the day. After his usual daily grooming and hygiene routines, he stepped into his closet and put on the large trench coat, moved on to the bowler hat, the glasses, and then the gloves. He took the 9mm pistol, placed it on his waist under the belts of his pants, and went to his vehicle. Having given his chauffeur the day off, he stepped into his vehicle and started the engine by himself for the first time in a long while. Driving to the soccer stadium, he contemplated everything that led him to this moment. An act that he thought harmless, taking money from Ikeji, had been one of the worst decisions he had made in his adult life. Though he could not go back and change it, he can change today, and he can change tomorrow. If his past self, from even six months ago, saw him now, he knows he would be mortified, but sees it as a necessary will to fight the insurmountable challenge this election has put before him. He has to win, and he is resolved that there is only one way. Arriving to the stadium, the match is just starting. Crowds of people are all migrating inside the large venue. Chooks parks as close to the stadium's exit as possible. After finding a comfortable spot, he sits in his car and checks his items. Once he finds everything is in order, he exits the vehicle. Hurrying to the front of the stadium entrance, he blends into the rushing crowds and finds himself inside the massive stadium. Making his way through the droves of people, he climbs the seating levels to the very highest and begins to scout for Kingsley. Reaching the very top of the stadium, he sits amongst the crowd and looks. Kingsley has not arrived yet. When is this man showing up? He's taking forever. Recollecting his memory from past events, when a high-profile person is in the stadium, the crowd almost revolves around the person. But the crowds in the stadium were clumpy and inconsistent. There was no central figure yet. As Chooks sat atop the soccer stadium, large instances of anxiety and paranoia filled his mind as he became hyper-focused on every single detail happening around him. Is it really hot today or what? Has that lady been looking at me? Maybe I should change seating position. After only a few minutes of idleness, the crowd at the bottom of the stage began to erupt in the middle sections, and soon it seemed everyone around Chooks was losing their minds. Kingsley had entered the building. Marching with about eight of his large, brutish bodyguards, Kingsley made his way through a stadium that seemed far more excited to see him than the soccer match itself. As Kingsley marched through the crowd, it split down the middle as if Moses himself was splitting the Red Sea. Chooks' eyes were fixed on Kingsley like a hawk and his prey, disregarding the massive applause that shook the stadium in his entire entrance. Ironically, Kingsley had placed himself around the middle section exactly the opposite side of Chooks in the stadium, but this was a massive inconvenience since Chooks needed to be near Kingsley. And by the time he would make it through the crowd on the other side, it would get thicker the closer he would get to Kingsley, and there would be no space. The damn bastard is making this harder than it needs to be. Thankfully, I've planned for this. Chooks did not panic. 
There was an underground walkway to cross the stadium without dealing with the above crowd or touching the game turf. Only a select amount of people have access to these walkways. Chooks, being the assemblyman, happened to be one of them. As the crowd was quickly trying to get close to Kingsley, Chooks headed underground without any issue and emerged on the other side of the stadium undetected. He then climbed through an incredibly thick crowd and found himself around 10 to 15 feet away from Kingsley himself. Chooks was now within striking distance of Kingsley, but he was patient. He understood pulling out a gun now, even very smoothly, would have him trampled by the surrounding civilians. Now, he waited, but he knew it would be soon as the soccer players started trickling down to the field to start the match. As all the players finally arrived on the field, the referee, which had been biding his time, finally decided to start the match. As kickoff happened, the entire stadium roared. In one place, you had everyone's favorite sport and a man that was going to provide a better future for your home. Everyone was excited out of their minds. Now that Chooks had made it to his position, he was able to better observe the crowd and quickly realize their energy wasn't just because they really liked soccer. He closely watched as Kingsley's bodyguards formed a protective circle around him, protecting him while Kingsley shook the hands and kissed the faces of everyone around him. The people loved him, and he didn't even win the election yet. This powerful moment of love from the crowd to Kingsley inserted seeds of doubt into Chooks' mind once more, inducing a migraine from his intense indecisiveness. As the match progressed, the crowd did not tone down its rowdiness, stomping their feet louder and louder, shouting at the top of their lungs. The match had been raging on for about 20 minutes, and it was a heated, heated struggle. The players sweat as they zoomed across the giant patch of field, playing their hearts out for the pride of their district. Eventually, an Mbise player was fouled in the penalty box, and it descended the already unruly crowd into a frenzy. The crowd cheered so much in support, you would think Christ himself had descended upon them. Neither side had scored, and this was a chance for Mbise to draw first blood. As the referee blew his whistle to prepare the penalty shot, a great calm fell upon the crowd. This moment signaled to Chooks that it was time to decide. He took a deep breath in and decided that once the shot was made by a player, he will assassinate Kingsley. As the players lined up at the half line, a young Nigerian boy, no older than 17, walked the ball to the penalty spot. While this boy had the weight of the entire stadium on his back and was under tremendous pressure, Chooks was facing a similar feeling of tension. His hand extended into his waist, gripping the gun tightly for a swift draw, ready for whenever the shot was to be made. He held this position, shaking and trembling with great fear and anticipation for the shot to be made. I did not want it to come to this, but it's what it is. He stared intensely at Kingsley. With wide eyes, he was Chooks' only focus. Chooks was ready to unleash all the anger he had unto this man that was going to take everything from him. And in this piercing look, he saw something that completely changed the course of his life. Kingsley was holding on to a smaller person in front of him and that while he was greeting the massive amounts of people around him, he made sure to keep one hand on a small person in front of him. In this moment, the referee blew the whistle for the shot to be taken, and then something miraculous happened. Chooks realized the small person in front of Kingsley was his daughter. Chooks' gaze now fell upon her, 
and in an instant, Kingsley's daughter looked directly at Chooks and smiled. The foul player began his walk to the white-painted spot on the field, placed the ball, and took four large strides back. The foul player, after saying a brief prayer, finally took a deep breath and sprinted towards the ball. In a split second, the ball was launched by the player's left foot, narrowly zooming past a very passionate goalkeeper and fell into the top right corner of the goalpost, grazing the back net. A mighty applause fell upon the stadium and everyone was overfilled with joy. The celebration, in fact, edged on chaotic as the entire country of Nigeria heard Mbise that day. During the celebration, everyone, whether you were old, young, from the district of Mbise or the other district, you stood if you could and clapped and chanted and showed appreciation for the skill in that goal. Kingsley was amongst the celebrators who picked up his daughter and put her on his head. This act alone made the uncontrollable crowd even more erratic and the celebration lasted far longer than it needed to. As for Chooks, he had left the crowd's stands and had rushed to the nearest restroom. He had become so nauseated that he would taint the innocence of Kingsley's daughter, who he didn't expect to show up to the event. He nearly vomited in his own mouth. Then, when the shot was made, the wild crowd overwhelmed Chooks, and he had to make his exit. As Chooks unpleasantly vomited in the nearest restroom, tears streamed down his face. It was unclear whether he was more upset that he didn't assassinate Kingsley or that he almost did. One thing he knew was true. He will never have this opportunity or the will to act like this again. It was astonishing to Chooks. Just moments ago, he was holding back his killer intent for the goal shot, and now the idea of it makes him sick because he saw his daughter in that moment. I bet they're the same age. Going to the stadium that day showcased how intense the love for Kingsley was, and Chooks kind of already knew this, as the polls were a constant reminder. He was resolved to fight and claw anyone that stood between his daughter and her treatment. Chooks prized re-election so much that he forgot what genuine connection had felt like. Chooks had pushed his wife away, his constituents, and others for the sake of victory. But in that moment, in the moment he saw Kingsley's daughter smile, he trembled. It melted his heart. The genuine purity in her eyes, wishing him well, were too much for him. He immediately had to retreat out of guilt as he understood the bloodlust he was on in a last-ditch effort to win an election that no one wanted him to win was such an impossible task that the sacrifices he thought necessary had turned him into a lesser man. Chooks finally walked out of the stall and to the sink. He started the tap and begins to wash off the residue vomit from his face. As he rinsed himself, he thought of all the crap he would get from his wife, knowing that she had been right all along. He also knew that he was in an all-new predicament for the future. Though he now knew he was going to lose this election, Chooks has finally come to terms with it. As Chooks reflected on all the bizarre things he did because of this election, he acknowledges that he had been in a dark and confusing place for a long time, unwilling to change in a time that required him to. As he turns off the tap and gets a paper towel to wipe his face, he thinks of Kingsley, a man that had caused him so much grief now garnered much more of his own respect. This had been the first time 
Chooks had been at peace with himself in a long time. He is ready to dedicate the next phase of his life to fixing his mistakes, starting with his wife and then with his daughter. To Chooks, rebuilding bonds with past loved ones is what he is ready to dedicate his life to. He so desperately wants to see a genuine smile again. As for the political position that gave him so much, it has also taken a lot from him. He is ready for the next generation to have their turn and hopes they will build in these trying times. He is quite tired of politics. Hello, everyone. That was the end of the first storyline of our podcast. Thank you so very much for listening to the very end. This will be the first of many great stories that I put out and hope these narratives are strong enough to have your continued support. These stories, again, are really exhausting to put together from the various aspects that I have to go from, from the script to the voice actors and the effects. College is very hard at the moment, and I really would hope that you are able to help build this project with me into something more impressive and put together even better stories. Uh, so if you could, please visit our website at tryingtimespodcast.com and donate if you can. We have a Patreon as well at patreon.com slash tryingtimes where our monthly donors receive special gifts like the ability to vote on future stories. A special shout out at the end of our stories, including your names in our stories, only access to the content. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Abera Piamati, which is E-B-E-R-E-P-A-M-A-D-I, and the podcast at Times underscore podcast on Twitter, and at Trying Times Podcast for Instagram. Updates and artwork will be posted on these social medias, so follow any of those accounts to stay updated on our great work. Thank you all once again for your ears. I cannot wait to share my next story with you.